Hey everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. We have a pretty exciting episode for you with a really interesting interview. Uh, but first, let's introduce ourselves, of course. I'm Emily Shields with Iowa Campus Compact. I'm J.R. Jamison with Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Seligson from Campus Compact. Awesome. So we always start with, where is Andrew, right? Or we've started starting with that, and I think we should. So Andrew, where are you? Well, right now I am at sea level in Boston, Massachusetts, but <laughs> I have recently spent uh, a lot of time in various mountains. So I was uh, earlier in the month in Utah for uh, a bunch of days. I was uh, both in Salt Lake for a great civic action planning uh, showcase with Utah Campus Compact and learned about some of the terrific work that's been going on through our civic action planning initiative across the state of Utah. And then I spent a few days in Ogden at a meeting of, it sort of brought together those of us in higher education engagement and folks from municipally based organizations like the National League of Cities and the International City County Managers Association to think about how we can spur more partnerships between cities and universities to work on public issues. It was a really interesting meeting, and I think could lead some great places. And then I would- Oh, well, real quick, I'd love yeah. to know more about that. Just side note, my husband works for the Iowa League of Cities. Oh, that's exact. So one of the things that I learned through this meeting was that both of those organizations I mentioned have state level organizations. And I'm not a math genius, but I thought, we've got state level organizations. They've got <laughs> state level organizations we maybe can uh, cook something up. Because I think there are great opportunities just to bring people together who are you know, working on behalf of cities, working to connect universities outward. And it's not really a direction that Campus Compact has spent a lot of time on in the past, but I think there were you know, just tremendous opportunities without giving it a lot of thought, bringing those, those two groups together. So I'd love to talk about uh, connecting your work worlds uh, in, in your household uh, in, in that way. Um, a dangerous proposition. Yeah, I, re I realized as soon as I said it, I was on thin ice. Uh, yeah, and then I was up in Golden, Colorado for an event with the sort of ominous sounding name, The Gathering, which was an intergenerational gathering of service learning community engagement people. So it kind of started with the group of people behind the book from the mid-90s called The Pioneers of Service Learning. It brought the people behind that book together again, but also with a, a newer generation of community engagement faculty and staff from colleges and universities. And then some of us were sort of hangers on because we were connected to different organizations. And uh, it was just a lot of talking and thinking together about where this work has come from and where it's headed. And I think actually was a really great uh, kind of discovery of some common ground across different approaches. Uh, you know, I think there, there was a sense on the part of um, some of the pioneers generation that the really kind of um, transformational dimensions of their agenda, that they really saw service learning as the beginning of a way to transform higher education, that I think there was a concern that maybe that had been lost. And I think that part of what happened during the conversations was a recognition that there may be different uh, kind of focus for current work, there may be different vocabulary, but the sense that higher education needs to be fundamentally changed in the direction of equity and opportunity for all 
uh, and that knowledge creation in partnership with community has to be part of the story. Those ideas are still alive and well. Uh, so it was it was really fascinating to be part of. Yeah, the, the Gathering does sound like a Stephen King novel, but um, <laughs> it sounds like everyone came out alive and maybe maybe even better off. So that's exciting. Yeah, um, Andrew, I say yeah. this every month. But if you need anyone to take <laughs> notes for you, carry your hats, I mean, any of those I will do. Carry your hat. <laughs> yeah, hat. yeah the, the hat carrier role, we, we've been had a lot of trouble filling that. That's posted on the Campus Compact Jobs website. Well, I'm your, I'm your person. But next month, Emily and I do get to travel with you to Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah. We have a couple of exciting times when we're all going to be together, actually. So... Real quick, we can just mention that um, we're actually doing a live recording of the podcast as a part of the Midwest Campus Compact Conference. So we'll be interviewing Dr. Byron White with Strive Partnership, who's done a lot of work around asset-based development and asset-based community engagement. So we're really excited about that. So the one that comes out in July will be from that live recording. And then, yeah, as JR just mentioned, we'll also be together um, in Mexico for our national network meeting uh, in Monterey um, coming up in mid-June and might even try to do some recording there. So um, look for that and we'll see what we have for you the rest of the summer. Uh, we also just wanted to mention, in case you missed it in the podcast feed, we had a special little kind of crossover pod bonus episode um, that was posted uh, just before this one. Uh, Andrew, do you want to just talk briefly about what that was? Sure. I was a guest on the Socrates Cafe podcast, uh, which is hosted by Chris Phillips. And Chris has developed an organization called Socrates Cafe, which is really based on the idea that all of us should and can be engaged in deep conversation with each other about significant questions that involve asking important questions and listening to each other. And so the, the podcast is one of his vehicles for advancing those conversations. So I encourage you to check out that episode, but also to check out, you know, if you Google Socrates Cafe, you can see some of the other work that they do, including staging, um, dialogues and discussions all across the country in all kinds of, you know, venues where people gather. It's not, not in formal institutions, but all sorts of informal places. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed, enjoyed talking with Chris, and I really respect the work he does. Great. So if you missed that one, go back and listen to it. Uh, but for today, let's get right to our interview. And Andrew, I'm going to turn it back over to you again just to briefly introduce our guest for the week. I had the opportunity to sit down with Marina Kim. Marina is executive director of Ashoka U. Some of you are probably familiar with Ashoka U. They are the university-focused or higher education-focused dimension of Ashoka, which is the long-standing change-maker-focused organization. And Marina has been really, I think, uh, broadening the ways that Ashoka U is thinking about social change and social innovation, and especially has been interested in fostering dialogues with people who are interested in social change, but maybe coming from different kinds of approaches. So uh, I had an opportunity to be part of a panel at Ashoka U's Exchange, which is their big gathering of higher education people. And you know, I really wanted to kind of turn the tables and give Marina the opportunity to talk about her vision and the work they're doing at Ashoka U. So let's take a listen. 
It is my pleasure to be joined on the Compact Nation podcast by Marina Kim, Executive Director of Ashoka U. Marina, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And a pleasure for me as well. And so we're you know, here to have a conversation about the work of Ashoka U, about social innovation, and how it connects with a whole bunch of other concepts like community engagement, civic engagement, and we'll get into all that. But where I wanted to start is the relationship between Ashoka U and another organization that many of our listeners may be familiar with, Ashoka, uh, which is a longstanding organization in the social innovation space. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Ashoka U and Ashoka and, and how they connect to higher education. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So I feel very lucky to be part of the, the larger global network that is Ashoka. Ashoka has been around for about 35 years and it started with the idea that the, that a, a big idea in the hands of a social entrepreneur can be quite transformative to systems and have national level impact and really cut across any issue area. So we have now a global network of 3,500 social entrepreneurs that have been designated as Ashoka Fellows. And this is in 90 countries around the world. Basically, anywhere there is a social issue, there is a social entrepreneur probably working on it. Uh, and Ashoka has a very specific methodology where it looks to find people who are not just working passionately on a specific idea, but have really deeply understood the complexity of the problem, have often lived it in the community itself, and have decided to dedicate a significant portion of their life, many years, many decades in certain cases, to um, moving the needle in a systemic change approach. So Ashoka is very particular in that the type of social entrepreneur it, 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 it builds into its global network is a systems changing social entrepreneur that is not just looking to do a small scale intervention, but is really thinking about what improvements can happen at the level of the education system, the healthcare system, um, and the systems that um, you know, might, might stop environmental degradation. So I feel very lucky to be surrounded by so many innovators and entrepreneurs and really people who've been spending large portions of their life understanding and addressing very complex social issues all over the world. So where Ashoka U comes in is that about 15 years ago, Ashoka, which had been widely known as being the organization for social entrepreneurs, went through a, a shift in mission and vision. And the big shift was really saying that, you know, this wonderful global network of social entrepreneurs is an incredible strategy. However, if you're really going to get to a place where the world has more solutions outrunning the rate and scale of problems, it can't just be an elite core of a few thousand social entrepreneurs. It really has to be a democratized process of unleashing, um, in the words of Ashoka, um, a world where everyone can be a change maker, regardless of age, background, um, credentials, um, or socioeconomic status, everyone should be able to contribute in a way that makes sense for their skill set and their roles and their strengths. And so could we build a culture 
and an ecosystem where that's possible. So Ashoka U comes in, in terms of thinking about what are the educational supports and what are the skill, um, kind of what are the specific skills to prepare young people going out into the world and can you combine it with an academic lens and an academic rigor? So what I find particularly special is that we get to be part of this global network of practitioners by sitting within the Ashoka organization, but Ashoka U is really the nexus point of bringing that, that practice into theory and making the academic rigor and of the analysis of social problems and the analysis of different types of social solutions, um, bring it to life in the world of um, the academic sector. And so how can students participate in this process? How can students learn about social change and how can they contribute as, as, contribute as change makers themselves? And when you use the vocabulary of social innovation and social entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurship, how should we hear those two concepts in relationship to each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say there's been a shift in the last decade, 15 years, from the term social entrepreneur and social entrepreneurship being the most commonly used to now having the focus be more on social innovation. And on the one hand, it doesn't seem like a huge shift, but what it actually signals is is quite a big philosophical difference. It's the difference between thinking about educating for the purpose of everyone launching their own venture, and they may be incredible ventures, but the reality is that very few ventures actually go on to sustain themselves past the launch and pilot phase and especially if you're talking about students, the, you know, the financial challenges, the, the, the feasibility challenges are, are, are pretty large. And so the shift from a social entrepreneur lens to the social innovation lens expands the variety of roles people can play in contributing to social impact. So it now means that you can be part of the social innovation sector, but you may not be a founder. You might be the marketing person on the team. You might play, um, you know, you might be uh, one of many different roles in a team, like a whole team needs to exist to make ideas come to life. Also the lens of social innovation broadens the types of disciplines that can be brought in. So you could have a policy social innovation, you could have a legal social innovation, you can have an engineering social innovation, and some of them might become social ventures with a social entrepreneurial founder, but some of them might be adopted into other organizational contexts or existing um, institutions. And so I think the social innovation lens is a much more inclusive, participatory, and um, broad tent to allow many people from many disciplines, many backgrounds, and many skill sets to feel that they are strategically contributing to social impact and may not uh, fit what they define in the more narrow lens of social entrepreneur. Can you, you know, I think many people have become familiar with some leading social entrepreneurs. You know, Muhammad Yunus invented microfinance and founded Grameen, and that's a story we know, and Wendy Kopp, the founder of Teach for America, and that's a story we know. Can you point to folks who, you know, you would identify as social innovators working in ways that, that are not as a founder of an organization, kind of through other sectors or, or again, playing other roles? 
You know, the, the first person who comes to mind is actually Sonal Shah, who um, for, for a while was leading the uh, Office of Social Innovation at the White House uh, in, um, a few years ago. And that is a role where she was stewarding the idea of social innovation through the mechanism of being a funding um, uh, organization. And also a lot of her work there was thinking about what are the policy levers that need to be um, uh, evolved or turned on to unlock more incentive for more participation in social change uh, for social entrepreneurs, but also for many types of organization that contribute to, to social impact. So I think it actually recent conversations with Sonal have actually made me think more about the role of government and policy and how that can be an inhibitor or uh, a contributor, but also, um, you know, there's huge amounts of roles within the philanthropic space. There's increasingly a lot of intermediary organizations that help build networks for social impact and collective impact. Um, there's a lot of organizations doing impact measurement work. And so what's exciting is there's an, an ecosystem that's being built that requires a variety of skill sets that requires um, people who are um, founders, but also people who are team players that requires people with more analytical or more social sector, uh, sorry, more social science skill sets. So really it's like that, that we're tapping into the broad array of different perspectives and approaches that can all be contributing towards a broader social impact goal. Um, and, and I just find that language matters, that, that people uh, from the business world or from the business school might find the word social entrepreneur and social entrepreneurship particularly exciting and gravitate towards that. But people who might be from different backgrounds or the humanities, the arts, um, other disciplines may actually be turned off. So I think it's important to think about how does language include people or exclude people? And how does language make the bar more accessible rather than uh, a barrier to entry to contributing to social change? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was just at a gathering of folks who were involved in uh, the early development of service learning and uh, published a book in the mid 90s, a group of them called Pioneers of Service Learning. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about the connection between these two sort of strands of, of change-making activity. But, uh, you know, for me, those folks who developed this pedagogy, introduced it, changed the, the relationship between uh, students and faculty and partner organizations outside of universities and helped really build a movement for change in higher education, you know, we wouldn't normally have described them as social innovators within that world, but I think they absolutely, you know, are, are a great example of, of what you're talking about, pioneering a new way of thinking and doing and yes. acting and putting it into practice. 100%. And that, that got widely adopted and scaled and allowed for adaptation and flexibility, yet with a common thread of key principles that as it scaled, it's really held a, a common uh, cohesion which is, is really impressive. So let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of your work. You know, we have a sense of the, the types of goals that Ashoka U is working toward in the context of this larger movement that Ashoka, you know, has done so much to create and advance. What, what does Ashoka U do? So we, again, are lucky to be part of this 
large global network of social entrepreneurs by being housed in Ashoka. And so I, I often say I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world because I get to be surrounded by, surrounded by positive people who are actively contributing uh, positively to the world. And, and what we've tried to do is take as much of the essence of Ashoka, of people who are spending large portions of their life contributing to improving the systems around them. And we've very much applied that ourselves to higher education as the system that we believe um, has a huge potential to create social impact. And then we've applied the lens of being innovators and um, uh, people who are within the system. And we're trying to ask the question, you know, what is the full potential of higher education? Are there mechanisms and ways to unlock people from within the system to perceive themselves as change makers within higher education? If so, what are some of the changes they can make that could help the cultures, the structures, the policies, and the identity of higher education um, reach its full potential? And so we, we go through a process of looking for institutional innovators um, and we build communities, we build networks. And so very similar to what Ashoka does with Ashoka Fellows, we are similarly looking for people who are from the, the community and the system, but who have ideas and um, uh, kind of uh, have, have found uh, ways that they can optimize the system to reallocate resources for greater impact. And so for example, these, innovate, these innovators can be pedagogical innovators and bringing the curriculum to be more experiential, bringing the practice into the theory, bringing in real world partnerships, bringing in um, project-based learning and just bringing a, a more engaged active learning component. Um, some of it might be research innovation. And so some of the folks in our network um, are thinking about how do you do research with practitioners? How do you flip the power dynamic so that it's co-created? How do you make sure that the research is not um, just going out to peer-reviewed journals, but is also being used as a tool for advocacy or for applying new ideas to real problems in the world and can there be an application to the research? Um, and then similarly, um, uh, a big part of what Ashokiu does is working with and empowering institutional innovators. And these are the folks who might not just be thinking at the classroom level, might not just be thinking about the research level, but they're thinking about what is possible if we fully you know, uh, brought to life the potential of this institution, this college, this university? Can we rethink how we bring the mission and vision to life in a 21st century context? If so, what does that look like? Can we bring a sense of participation and engagement from faculty and staff to be part of a process of institutional change where we're innovating um, how we operate, we're innovating um, how people work together across disciplines and across hierarchies. And so, you know, many of our partnerships, we go through a multi-year change process with a campus. Um, so, yeah, so we, we, we basically have a variety of different ways that we work with individuals who are able to bring new models for social impact, but also for rewiring um, how education happens and rewiring how relationships happen on campus and also rewiring some of the um, kind of cultures and structures on campus. And then um, we, we, we build networks of people. So every year we have the Ashoka U Exchange and that's a place where we share a lot of these best practices. Uh, and so it's how do you get 
How do you get new courses on social innovation and social impact more broadly? Um, what does it take to get minors, majors, masters? Um, in certain cases, it's how do you in embed and infuse these social impact and social innovation content and ideas across different disciplines. So how do you build networks across campus of faculty who want to teach about water innovations in their, in their class? Or how do you uh, work with um, someone who's in chemistry and wants to think about pharmaceutical innovations um, uh, for social impact and, and how that actually ties to the application of some of the chemistry um, that the, the students are learning? And so we've had a variety of different um, professors across an array of disciplines who are thinking about how to bring out the social impact element of their work and how to do the, the teaching in an innovative way, but also how to think about how the social impact can be a particularly creative or a particularly uh, scalable model to, to bring out to the students. Um, and then we also do something called the Ashokyu Commons, which is a multi-month learning journey online um, that that brings together faculty or staff who are interested in launching a social entrepreneurship uh, accelerator or incubator uh, or someone who's trying to launch a course series with social impact and social innovation as the main content area. And we, we basically bring together a small group of folks who, are, who have the similar goal and we bring them through a learning experience with a coach um, and, and then a curriculum of best practices so that they can develop it while learning from existing models. And, and then the, the final thing that, that Ashokiu does that, again, has drawn very heavily from what Ashoka does with Ashoka Fellows is that we have a designation for institutions that we call changemaker campuses. And, and that is, uh, we've, you know, bringing together an entire campus-wide ecosystem with support and buy-in from the president, the provost, the trustees, um, also all levels of leadership, really, but also it's supported and, and um, kind of uh, really demanded by the students. And then there's a breadth and depth of, of faculty and staff engagement and where we really see that just it's a very robust campus-wide commitment to living the values of social impact and social innovation. And there's been a lot of questioning about the institutional identity and purpose and then a lot of experimentation about what that means when you translate that into new programs or adapted programs, um, new curriculum or adapted curriculum, and, and how the ethos and the culture of the institution can support those values. So I know at Campus Compact, we love each of our 1,000 plus member institutions precisely equally. So I'm sure the same is true of all the institutions you work with. But I'm wondering if you can give us an example or two of some things that have come out of the work you've done with an institution that you just think kind of capture what the work looks like in practice. So I'll give a couple different institutional examples just because I think some of the, the starting point uh, actually matters for how this conversation comes to light that then kicks off a process of, of campus change or um, you know, uh, new elements and new models that come, come alive. And so one of which is um, the Tulane story. And so Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005. Uh, the, there was a big question about what would happen as a result. And as 
all the students got evacuated. The, the school had to be substantially rebuilt. And as the students were coming back to campus, this was really a moment of opportunity, a moment of identity, a moment of, uh, of having a, a crossroads of strategy. And at the time, um, the, the president, uh, Scott Cowan, uh, said that the future of New Orleans is very much intertwined with the future of Tulane, and we want Tulane to be an ex a positive contributor to the rebuilding of New Orleans, and we want this to be part of our legacy, and we want this to be part of our identity. We want this to be what Tulane is known for. So, you know, the first campus in the country, Tulane, mandated service learning. And many of you uh, listening probably know this. This is uh, kind of commonly known in the service learning world. Um, but what I find particularly striking is that it was um, a moment of identity formation sparked by a moment of crisis. And in that process, the, the institution then um, went through a, a very significant change process to enable and equip faculty and staff across a variety of disciplines to incorporate this new um, model of, of service learning at scale to meet every single student. And then the exposure to the community that the students got, you know, became immersed in was um, pretty transformative. And so one of the things then after a few years of, of this model becoming so successful and so pervasive at Tulane, um, some of the students started thinking, well, now we understand the context. We understand how can we contribute um, in addition to contributing um, with the community organizations we're working with. And so that's where the beginning of the social innovation initiative took um, took root uh, at Tulane, and so it was very much building out of deep commitment to service learning, and it was built out of a student interest, and also um, I think faculty observing that. Um, the students had been immersed in understanding the, the landscape, the community, the opportunities, and they were eager to um, contribute in, in, in more ways. And so that's where the social innovation lens came in. And so that they created a position at the time that was special assistant to the president for social innovation and social entrepreneurship. Um, it was a fully staffed role that started building out a team. Around that time, Ashoka Yu started working with Tulane and so we've just been working with them for close to eight years at this point. And the social innovation work has, similar to service learning, taken very deep root into the culture and structures of the institution, but very much also into how the, or the institution partners with community organizations and how um, the students have a learning journey through service learning, which is the required portion of their first year as a student, to then thinking about what that means for their future development, what are the additional kind of skills and roles that they can play in, in their time as a student and then as they're in their time post-graduation. And what we've observed is that there's a lot of students who graduate and stay in New Orleans because there's such a deep commitment to the community and there's many different roles that they've played um, through social innovation and other avenues in, in um, partnering with the community organizations in developing initiatives with community organizations and developing their own organizations as part of the New Orleans ecosystem. And, and now there's a, 
uh, quite a large campus-wide center that's focused on social innovation and design thinking. And it's an interdisciplinary center. There's an interdisciplinary minor in social innovation and social, uh, social entrepreneurship. And it's very much rooted in the values of community engagement and in the practice of service learning as the way that all students start understanding the context before they start thinking about potential solutions and ways to contribute um, as change makers themselves. And, and that example points to, you know, an interconnection between service learning, civic engagement, community engagement, uh, as those terms are, are kind of typically used, and social innovation, social entrepreneurship. Is that a pattern that, that you have identified or is, is that case distinctive or, you know, again, is it a, kind of, does it exemplify something larger? Well, let me give you a second example first, and then I'll maybe tease out a few patterns overall. Um, but uh, the short answer is yes, <laughs> but I think uh, it's much more nuanced and complex than that. Uh, and so the other example uh, that I wanted to share is about Arizona State University. And what I find particularly inspiring and impressive about them is that the, you know, again, it was... Um, prompted by the president, President Crow, uh, who's very visionary. And he, he came to ASU and the first thing he did was think about what are the design principles for the type of institution that's needed in the world of today. And so they, they built an archetype of what they're calling the new American university. And it's, it's a focused around inclusion, not exclusion. So it's, it's about the percentage of students they accept rather than the percentage of students they reject in the admissions process, which is a fundamental difference from a lot of the most elite institutions in the country, which are very proud of their shrinking acceptance rate numbers. So I think it's a question of this institution is desiring to serve as many people as possible, and they've, they've grown extremely rapidly over the past decade as well, and, and now have over well over 80,000 students um, attending. Uh, and, and then secondly, they restructured um, around these design principles, which very much focused on um, social embeddedness and being an entrepreneurial university. So like every single student has some sort of experience with entrepreneurship in some way. That's very much the, the, the goal and they're, they're getting very, very close to that. And there's just an ethos of action orientation as well as rigorous learning. But what I find interesting about this structural overhaul that they did is they went from schools that were extremely discipline focused to rewiring it to be every school is a multidisciplinary school and the schools are based around specific issue areas. And so they, they very much tried to model the school to meet the model of the world rather than focus on disciplines, which is an, you know, in certain ways an arbitrary way to slice and dice information and expertise that doesn't necessarily model the way the world works, which is very complex and nuanced and in many cases very multidisciplinary. And so the, all the students that experience ASU experience multidisciplinarity. They experience the sense of inclusion. They experience this, this entrepreneurial energy and this, the campus itself is modeling all these values in how it's changing to live 
the vision that they are, are really putting out there is what they believe the, the potential future for higher education is. And so it's a, it's a very different, um, uh, very different from higher ed as, as a whole, but I also think different from the Tulane um, uh, example as well. But I think what you see that's a common thread is that the campus is willing to evolve and adapt to be responsive and relevant to the needs in the world, as opposed to just assume that the structures that were designed and that higher education still operates in are, are de facto you know, must continue, but that really higher education is an institution that needs to evolve, that needs to adapt, that needs to have impact in the local and global contexts. Um, and that this rewiring of the institution is a key part of the innovation that needs to happen in higher ed. So let's, uh, you know, I think we, there's so many areas that are emerging where we, even if we use somewhat different vocabulary, we're, we're pretty much saying the same things. And so let's circle back to this question about the interconnection between civic and community engagement as it's developed on most campuses and social innovation. What do you, what do you see going on in that relationship? Again, the Tulane example brought out one dimension of that. What else kind of lights up for you when you think about that interconnection? So this is where, again, language matters. And I think language has gotten in our way quite a bit in this case. And um, I think that institutions tend towards um, uh, creating structures and then changing of those structures can be quite difficult. And so what's interesting is when I look at the timeline of various development of, of how these movements have been evolving, service learning has been going for you know, 30 years and, and social innovation or social entrepreneurship, whatever terminology a particular campus might use, is definitely newer. Um, it, I think it really started becoming more abundant in the last five, 10, 15 years. And so in many ways, social entrepreneurship and social innovation, it's the new kid on the block. And, and yet, I think because sometimes it can be perceived as, um, you know, it's innovative, it's, it's trendy, it's exciting for students, I think it can also be perceived in a way that is, may or may not actually be accurate. <laughs> um, and so what I've found is that the language can get in the way, particularly when the term social entrepreneur is used. But even with the term social innovation, people still think it means social entrepreneur, which therefore means founding your own venture, which has a lot of, um, you know, uh, positive and negative associated with it. And so... Um, I actually think the more I speak to folks who've been in service of enabling students to be agents of change, when you actually neutralize the language and the language and the kind of the, uh, the perception that you're on this side of the camp or you're on that camp, actually when you talk about the substance behind the intent as an educator and the intent of what you're equipping students to be able to do, I'd say there's a 60 to 80% Venn diagram overlap. And I've actually started interviewing um, leaders in the civic engagement, community engagement, service learning world to try to tease that out. And I'm still doing a lot of thinking and sifting through that. But what I've found is that as social innovation has become more, um, uh, 
I think expansive and inclusive in how it defines what it's attempting to achieve, that it is not just about students launching social ventures. And, um, you know, uh, I think, and then it's much more about uh, a flexible skill set that is um, providing systemic, you know, root cause analysis to address social problems in the world, ideally with humility and respect, um, and with uh, starting with a place of understanding before action then there is quite a bit of overlap with community engagement and civic engagement values and approach as well. And so, yeah, I, I personally find that when you sit people down and you deconstruct what the misunderstandings are, there's half the problem is misunderstandings. And it's because I think things have changed in social innovation and social entrepreneurship over the last 10 years as it's matured. It was, it was really a baby <laughs> and now it's an adolescent. So it's still a little awkward, but um, I think there's a much, a lot more maturity and there's a lot more alignment between the, these movements. And I think there's a huge amount that both sides can learn from each other. And for the sake of the student, which is where we're all basically, you know, hoping that we're contributing um, the student benefits from having more understanding and more opportunities to have a toolkit of social change and a, a, a whole array of ways of thinking about how they can contribute to social impact. And so for the sake of the student and for the sake of the institution, I think there's a real moment in the next five or 10 years for how we bring these methodologies and pedagogies together in, in some cases under the same roof, and we're starting to see that in some campuses in our network, but in other cases, at least as a framework for social change, where students see that if they like one of these, they might want to try the other so that they have a whole set of tools to, to address how they might tackle complexity of, of challenges in the world. So I think you said the, the Venn diagram overlap from your perspective is about 60 to 80%. And I'm wondering if you could say what you see as sitting in that 20 to 40 percent that that kind of separates out these approaches. Yeah, and and I think this is where some where why there's a, a, a spectrum. The 20 to 40 is I think because we're um, there's a lot of bad execution of social innovation and social entrepreneurship. So I think that there are valid critiques. However, if you're thinking about the best case scenario of social innovation, there's a lot of overlap with the best case of community engagement and civic engagement. And that includes very respectful, very nuanced um, engagement with and for communities that is co-creative and adds value and is done in a long-term capacity where there is um, an understanding of the social, the cultural, and kind of the, the systemic forces that are, um, you know, that, that got us, that got the, the situation to, to where it started in the first place. And so there's a lot of respect and a lot of humility and a lot of um, patience. And, and I think the biggest critiques of social entrepreneurship and social innovation come around the short-term, often arrogant assumptions that without a deep understanding of the issue, the community, or the context, um, a young student can come in with a solution. And so it's being overly enthusiastic to rush to a solution before deeply understanding and immersing to see both what's out there that might already be working before your solution comes in, but also I think 
um, to really see where there might actually be an opportunity for impact and, and not cause harm. And so I think a lot of it comes around the orientation of how to engage with the community. And so that's where I think there's a huge amount that social innovation can learn from the community engagement best practices of how to develop true relationships, deep partnerships, trust, um, communication skills, um, the, the, the focus on longevity and really being rooted and not um, you know, short term come and go and, you know, you know, the, the whole, you know, come build a well and then the well breaks and then no one solves it. And then you basically left a problem in a community that, you know, you were actually trying to help. And so I think a lot of it is just, um, I agree. There are a lot of challenges to badly implemented, well-intended social interventions, <laughs> but I think every type of methodology of any, you know, any possibility of sending students out into communities um, can have a lot of the ethical uh, implications. And so I personally think a lot of the critiques of social innovation in particular are actually a critique of any type of intervention in a particular community that every type of every kind of methodology of social impact should heed. And so I actually just think what's missing is just a common set of standards that I think that the community engagement movement has taken a leadership role in that probably has not been as much taken to heart by social innovation. And I think that's one huge area of the ethical implications and the best practices of building effective community uh, engagement approaches to social innovation. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that, and it's all related, is that it's just patience and humility and um, being willing to understand before acting. And I guess my, my overall critique about that as well is that, again, I don't think that's a critique of social innovation. I think that's a critique for all educators who are working with young, enthusiastic students who are itchy to get out there and do something and may or may not have the ability or the practice of thinking through external uh, kind of all the implications that might come out positive and negative about their actions. And, and so I personally think that's, that's in the purview of each educator to slow down a process of intervention and increase the reflection and awareness and really encourage a longer term focus and talk about the negative um, potential outcomes of everything you might do, no matter how great your intention. So I don't know, I think and that's what I think comes from social innovation being a newer methodology and movement. It hasn't had the nuance and the maturity um, of, of service learning and community engagement, which has had many years to refine and perfect a lot of these ethical codes of conduct. Um, but that's where I actually think there could be a huge amount of bringing the baseline up so that social innovation can ensure that it it doesn't doesn't cause harm as much. And then secondly, I think there's an action orientation that social innovation has that uh, particularly service learning, which is more for learning and reflection and understanding, doesn't have. But then in some cases, even community engagement and civic engagement might have certain kind of action built in, but it might be... Um, action with the community organization and it may um, you know there isn't necessarily a desire to 
um, question the status quo and try to build upon it. And, you know, especially if you've had enough time to learn and absorb and reflect and, and see what the patterns are, there might be some value that can be added if you really add something new to the equation. So I think there's a, a level of creativity and risk taking and action orientation and trying to trying solutions that social innovation can bring to community engagement, whereas the deep respect, relationship building, cultural sensitivity, and I think long-term approach um, community engagement and um, service learning can bring to social innovation. One thing you're calling attention to is that kind of in contrast to the maybe technocratic sound of terms like social entrepreneurship or social innovation, that there are kind of deep aspects of uh, ethical orientation, really of character that are relevant to the work that need to be cultivated in the educational process. And I know from, you know, David Bornstein's book, How to Change the World, kind of stories of social entrepreneurs, that one of the things that really shines through is the deep commitment of the people doing the work and the, just the profound connection between them as human beings and the work they're doing. And I'm wondering, you know, just for you, what brought you to the work you're now doing? How does it connect with your own commitments and, and values. Hmm. So the, the, the first thing is, yeah, when, when you look at Ashoka Fellows in particular, the fact that they're trying to uh, have an impact at the level of a system means that by definition, they cannot be successful within a semester, one year, two year, even often five years. And so most of it, when you, when you are realistic about the level of ambition and the scale of impact that, um, often some of these social entrepreneurs and social innovators want to have, you're really talking about a decade plus proposition. Um, and, and so that's just one thing that I, I also don't think is clearly mentioned in the educational process that, you know, if you want to only do something for a year or two, scope it down, don't be so ambitious and, and really think about what you can be responsible um, for accomplishing. And so that you don't overly raise expectations of the community you're working with, um, of the funders that you're working with, and all the stakeholders that you should have an, a, a responsibility to. Um, but that I often think that the level of ambition um, is, you know, uh, is not managed. And, and I think this is both a, a challenge of being young and idealistic and ambitious, which, you know, I definitely was. And so actually, that's a great segue. I thought we could transform higher education. And I'm so embarrassed to say this, not transform that that's too big a word, but, but really have an effect on higher education as a sector within three years. <laughs> so that's how uh, ridiculous I thought um, when you're a young person who doesn't know what you don't know um, and that the more you learn the more you learn you don't know and so honestly I've been doing this work with Ashoka and Ashoka U for over a decade and so nearly 15 years um, if you include some of my student uh, leadership in this space and so and and there's still so much work to be done and so I have definitely the more I've realized the complexity of institutions and sectors and the more you realize the inertia of institutional change, you realize that even at a single institution, three years is a drop in the bucket, let alone a sector. Um, and so 
Yeah, so I, I would say that I came in with a, probably a, an overly simplistic, overly idealistic perception that if you bring some innovative ideas into higher education, it will magically happen in a short amount of time. And so I actually would say I am a living example of some of the flawed thinking of social innovation, um, but yet I actually feel that the way that I have become more mature has been by integrating in more of the sophisticated, mature, long-term thinking that can come from community engagement. Um, so I don't know. I, I hope that I, I kind of bring a balanced perspective of all of these different movements and methodologies into the way we think about Ashoka U and that we very much take a long-term approach, but also we have a sense of urgency because if you just assume things will take a long time, you might slow it down more than it needs to. And so I think it's this constant tension and constant balance of being willing to take calculated risks, not, not silly risks, but calculated risks to try to improve what is already in existence. And if you build a sense of capacity and confidence in doing that in a lot of people in, in my team or in the teams that we work with on campuses, it actually builds upon itself so that there's a, a momentum for positive change and positive innovation. And then I think the more you do it, the more you can also layer in a lot of the ethical elements and the respect and relationship and trust elements. And so... Yeah, I think the ideal is having the, kind of all of the pieces integrated into any approach to change. Well, I, I know from our own work at Campus Compact with many of the same institutions and people you work with that as Ashoka use influence has grown and your engagement with campuses, you really have accelerated the positive movement that we're part of for higher education for the greater good, the public purposes of higher education. And so I appreciate the work you've done as an organization. I know of your tremendous contribution to it personally. So I, I thank you for that and for being our guest on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks for all your great questions and all your work as well. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the conversation between Andrew and Marina. For me, I would say there were two items that really stuck out and resonated with me from the conversation. One was around the idea of language and that language matters. I know here in Indiana, we started a microloan program a couple of years ago, and we were using the term social entrepreneurship and really pushing that with the folks involved in our work at Campus Compact, and it just was not sticking. And listening to Marina talk about social innovation and how that's an equalizer, brings more people to the table, that really was something that uh, I'm taking away and I, I want to implement here, at least in conversations with our folks. Uh, we tend to have individuals who come to us mainly from the humanities, and we've had a really hard time uh, breaking away from traditional service learning and community engagement language. And so, so social innovation stuck out to me uh, from, from that as a takeaway. The other piece was the toolkit of social change. And when she talked about developing experiences for students and that the intersection of service learning, community engagement, and the work of Ashoka U and social innovation, we're really, we have the same goal in mind. Uh, but we have different tools that we may use uh, to get there. And so if we think about the overall student experience and that we're creating a toolkit of social change and we're each a tool in that toolkit working together for the greater purpose, 
that really spoke to me as well and was something that that I think uh, will shift language in the way we do our work, at least here in Indiana. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I appreciated that too. You know, I've used Minnesota Campus Compact Social Change Wheel quite a bit in working with folks here, and I think it really helps just to get people thinking about all the different ways you can be a part of social change. So if one area doesn't resonate with you, that's okay. There are others where, you know, your skills and talents might be a better fit, and it all goes together. You know, it's not necessarily this thing where we have to pick which is the best way to make social change. We need all of it. Um, and I think that tends to equalize conversations as well and, and kind of bring it back to focusing on how we can make it all fit together. I also, you know, just listening to her got me just really excited thinking about the higher ed of the future. I really appreciate whenever someone's talking about how we can make higher ed focused more on being welcoming versus exclusionary and how can we make status more based on who you're who you're welcoming versus who you're saying no to and who you're excluding and you know she talked about that Andrew I've heard you talk about that before and it's just an idea that really speaks to me and uh, makes me excited to be a part of something that might be making that change a, a reality. One of the things just in thinking about Ashoka and their efforts at change. One of the things uh, there's a there's a great book by David Bornstein called How to Change the World, which focuses on Ashoka Fellows. And I think one of the things that's interesting is just how long it takes people to make change. And the fact that you know we sometimes think of social entrepreneurship as like a quick idea that will just um, immediately blow up and and change things. And I think really these are stories of long term commitment. And so, Emily, when you're talking about changing higher education, I think it is that kind of one has to have the long view. And that's really when we're thinking about systemic change that affects the lives of large numbers of people in positive ways and gets at deep problems that have developed over decades, centuries, you know, the, taking that, that long view and really thinking again about how, how do we build in a, a large number of people the capacity to be part of positive change in yeah, a million different ways that we can't predict right now. That Yeah, I think that's a, re a really exciting thing about the way they approach the work. Yeah, the long-term piece, you know, I appreciated how much she talked about the long-term orientation of community engagement and service learning. I'm not sure that's always as true as she gave it credit for, but I, I know it is a value, and I think it's an important one. Um, you know, what I heard at some point in my life, I heard, a, a quote from someone or you know someone smart saying you know you've found the right challenge in your life when it's one you're not sure will be accomplished in your lifetime like you know you found a, a big enough challenge and that's kind of how I feel when I think about this kind of stuff I think I don't know if I'll see fully what I would like to see higher ed and its relationship to communities look like but that means we've found a pretty big challenge to dive into, and, and I do think that's exciting, and it's a different way of orienting yourself. Mm -hmm. I'd agree. The other piece that stuck out to me when she was talking about research uh, and the idea of we have to get outside of academic journals and social innovation and the work that we do in service learning and community engagement lends itself to non-traditional publications, but it was a reminder for me how much the structure still needs to change around promotion and tenure. Going back to a couple of episodes ago uh, with Andy and Kathy in our conversation 
on uh, research, publication, and promotion and tenure. It just reminded me that there's so much we still need to change within the structure of higher education to make that vision a reality. Yeah. I just wanted to take one opportunity to throw in a quick plug. Uh, we have a book in the pipeline that Campus Compact will be publishing next year, edited by Eric Malin of Duke University and Amanda Moore McBride of University of Denver, focusing on the interconnections between social innovation and civic engagement. And some of the questions that come up really are about, you know, how much do we need new ideas, in innovation, et cetera, and how much do we just really need the political skills to implement things we actually already know are the things we have to do. And so I think that's that's also one of the interesting questions is kind of how do we need to get better and what should be our focus or focus areas in educating. And as you said, these things are not mutually exclusive. I think you mentioned the, the social change wheel. I think um, the tool that uh, has been developed at the Haas Center at Stanford, Pathways to Public mm -hmm. Service, another example. But I think that question of getting students to think about where where's the focus in how they're developing themselves? Do they want to be people kind of focused on novelty or focused on this kind of capacity for working together with others? Uh, and you know, again, it's it's not one or the other, but but I think that mix is really important to think about. Yeah, and that respect and understanding of what people are already out there doing, what's been tried, what ideas, you know, really needing to take the time to fully understand that is such an important piece, whether you're talking about innovation or not. Um, and the innovation can be in how you bring that idea to practice, right? Not necessarily in the idea. All right. Well, should we go to Pop Culture Corner? We shall. Yeah, anybody? Okay. Um, Andrew, you want to start that one off? Sure. Um, so my partner in life uh, sent me a link yesterday to a piece on an online publication called The Bluegrass Situation. So it's at thebluegrasssituation.com, and it's kind of what it sounds like, an online bluegrass-focused publication. And they had a piece uh, called A Minute in Harrisonburg with the Steel Wheels, which is kind of a tour of Harrisonburg, Virginia, led by Trent Wagler, the lead singer of this band called The Steel Wheels. So I'm promoting a whole bunch of things here at once. So one is the band The Steel Wheels, which I'm about to see uh, next week here in uh, the Boston area, Club Passim in Cambridge. They're a great band. I've seen them before, and they're fantastic. They met at college at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg. And uh, so this tour of Harrisonburg caught my attention for a couple of reasons. One is we are getting ready to launch Campus Compact for Virginia, which is very exciting for us. We've had uh, tremendous kind of coming together of folks in the state of Virginia, and it will be based at James Madison University in Harrisonburg. So I've been Harrisonburg focused. And, uh, and then also it just got me thinking a little bit about the relationship between music and community and kind of this tour that Trent Wagler gives you know, gives a sense of the places in this small town where people come together around things like music and beer and bicycles and just gave a really uh, strong sense of a place through these ways that people connect with each other. And I, in, a, in a former life, I used to teach a course on uh, art and politics and, you know, that, that pattern of kind of music playing this powerful role in shaping the way people connect. 
has just been on my mind a lot. So this was this was just an occasion to reflect on that a little bit. Cool. My pop culture is really similar. So I'm a huge music fan, and one of my favorite bands is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I had the chance to see them last week here in Indianapolis. And while I was at the concert and looking around at all of these people just enjoying music together, it reminded me that we all have different values. Uh, we all may speak a different language, but music can be the great equalizer and bring everyone together. I mean, I just saw these four guys in Red Hot Chili Peppers just rocking out on stage and everyone going crazy for their music uh, and enjoying each other's company. And it just reminded me how much music in the arts can bring people together and, and, and how valuable that is. But the other thing is right before the concert, I was out exploring uh, around Banker's Life Fieldhouse, which is where the concert was at. And I actually ran into Anthony Kiedis, who is the lead singer of Red Hot Chili Peppers. And it was this awkward moment where I acknowledged him. He knew that I knew who he was. Uh, and I could have at any moment outed him and said, oh my gosh, it's Anthony Kiedis. And then everyone around could have just mobbed him, rushed him, right? But there was this moment where we had mutual understanding, where he knew I wasn't going to do that to him. But I thought to myself, like, the power of good and evil, right, in some ways. I could have done that, and it could have, you know, maybe ruined his experience of exploring indie before the concert. Um, but I didn't. And so he had a chance to explore almost uh, as an anonymous person on, on the street. And so that was another reminder of me that the power we each have in us to change a moment by what we say or don't say. You know, Jared, cool. he, was, uh, he was also thinking, wait a minute, that's the guy from the Compact Nation podcast. <laughs> I but think he was. I, I'm going to keep it to myself and not ruin his evening. I think. Exactly. That's J.R. Jameson. I'm going to let him go about his business and not be mobbed. Well, he did ask for my autograph. And no, I'm kidding. That, that did not happen. But, uh, but he may be a listener. How do we know, right? <laughs> We don't know. We are on we iTunes. If you're, if you're out there, Anthony Kiedis, we're big fans. <laughs> we, we are. Um, well, I'll stick with the music theme, but, you know, as it, as much as it can bring people together, it can also tear them apart in terms of opinions. So my favorite movie of all time is Dirty Dancing. I know I'm a total Gen X cliche, but I love it. And this past week they did a remake. And, of course, has there ever in the history of the world been a remake that people embraced? I can't think of an example. So there's been a lot of hot takes and a lot of hate for it. And it, you know, it had some issues. But here's my, my hot take is that the ways in which they changed the story really improved, particularly the female characters in it. They took some in the original movie, really one-dimensional characters like the mom and the sister and even the other lead dancer and gave them their entire storylines um, where they were really empowered, where they actually were speaking up, were making change and weren't sort of the, just these peripheral uh, characters who were really just kind of stereotypical women of that time. So for that reason, I was I was actually kind of excited about it, even though no one holds a candle to Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, so you're just always going to have issues when it comes to that. 
So they didn't allow anybody to put them in the corner. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not it wasn't just baby not being put in the corner. It was several, several women being pulled out of their corners. And that just really stood out to me. It seemed very intentional. And uh, I thought it was cool. If you, uh, listeners, if you need to direct any rage tweets for defending the uh, the remade Dirty Dancing, those go directly to Emily uh, rather than to, you know, at Compact Nation Pod. <laughs> yeah, okay. Send me your Dirty Dancing rage tweets. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm on it right now. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. I think we'll wrap it up there for today and uh just remind people come back next month and look for our live recording podcast we're we're really excited about that please as always find us on itunes subscribe rate us review us every podcast maker is looking for that um you can email us your ideas or you know, dirty dancing critiques at uh, podcast at compact.org or find us on social media, hashtag compact nation pod. Thanks as always for listening and have a great day, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Hey Habiba, what does a pig think of the Compact Nation podcast? <laughs>